So I've been trying to eat less cheese, uh, you know, for the planet and the animals and stuff. And just before recording this, I am, um, well, someone very kind made me a cheese on toast. That's grilled cheese for the American listeners, sandwich. Um, and having not eaten cheese for a while, I'm really feeling it. So that was a good idea to do that right before in recording the introduction to a podcast. But it was a lovely, thoughtful sandwich and I'm so grateful for it. Anyway, hi, I'm Tim. Um, I'm saying, I mean, I say that at the beginning of every podcast and I normally say something like, but you already know that because if you're watching this, you're probably one of my close friends or family members. But in this episode, I think there might be a few listeners, a few new listeners who don't know me. Um... And for the benefit of those new listeners, I'm going to keep this little introduction quite short because you don't want to hear me going on about my life, uh, which is what I bore my normal audience with. Um, I am coming to you today from the With community in Ditchingham in Norfolk in England, um, which is an awesome, special, maybe even sacred place. Um, you, if you're a long-time listener of the podcast, you might remember a conversation with my friend James back in, I think it was episode two, pre-YouTube, when it was still called uh, The General Speech. Um, and basically, James got a convent, um, a group of nuns living in Norfolk, couldn't maintain the space anymore, so they basically put an ad out to say, we want to give this amazing space to somebody for free if you can do something cool with it. And my friend James and his friend Jamie applied and were given it and have created this amazing community space uh, for young people away from all of the noise and distractions of modern life. Um, So I'm kind of walking around the place at the moment, but you can maybe see it off there in the distance. Um, Maybe. I'll even splice in some other shots of it. I'm walking around it because I'm nervous about bumping into people. I'm embarrassed recording this in public. Um, So that's where I am. And I'm enjoying the silence and the stillness. Um, Actually, am I enjoying it? I'm finding it challenging. That's probably a better word to use. Um, I don't know about you guys, but uh, when life is fast-paced and busy and stressful... Um, stopping for a moment can can almost make you feel worse before you feel better because there's this moment of like oh fuck was I that unwell was I that stressed like you realize when you get away from all the external noise how much internal noise was still going on and I've kind of been aware of that these past kind of 24 hours but I'm glad to be here I'm grateful for it and even though it's a challenging feeling it's a good and important one And ultimately, I think, a beneficial and healing one. I've reached the dead end. I'm turning around. Um, So, you're here, I believe, to hear me talk with Jesse Thorne. Um, This is a podcast I'm super excited about. The history of this podcast is... Essentially, it's a series of conversations between me and my friends. With quite a small audience, made up of mainly my friends and family. Um... But it's about kind of people who I find interesting, 
talking about their experiences of religion, faith, spirituality, and that kind of thing, good and bad. And when I renamed it earlier this year, um, I wanted a name which made it clear what it was about, that it's about religion, faith, etc. But also made it clear that it's an inclusive space, not coming from one particular point of view or perspective. Um, certainly not trying to win any debates about anything, but just to talk safely about people's experiences of whatever, belief. Um, so I am a regular listener to a podcast called Judge John Hodgman. And on Judge John Hodgman, when they swear the defendants in, they swear them in. And using the line, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the, tr- nothing but the truth, so help you God or whatever. Uh, and I, I think that's a cool line, partly just because it's kind of funny, um, but also because it's kind of taken something which is serious and uh, well-established and maybe kind of sacred, um, but making it inclusive and accessible for everyone. And that's the whole point of this podcast, that let's make this conversation inclusive and fun and accessible, um, where all views are welcome. So uh, I reached out to Jesse on Instagram, uh, I don't know, a good few months ago, and kind of said, look, uh, I do this podcast and I stole the name of it from one of the things that you do. Um, and pushing my luck, do you ever want to come on it? Be great to hear what you think about this whole this whole world. Um, and really to my surprise, really to my surprise, Jesse said, yeah. Um, and we emailed back and forth for a while, trying to find a time and a date that worked for everyone. Jesse is in California and I'm here in the UK. Um, so there's a time difference to take into consideration as well. Um, and there was a moment where I thought we weren't going to make it work because Jesse had other stuff going on. But amazingly, we did make it work. And I was uh, blown away by Jesse's generosity, both in terms of his time. You know, he gave me more than the hour which I asked him. Um, but also in terms of kind of what he talked about. You know, Jesse talks really openly and honestly and frankly um, about his religions with, uh, sorry, his experiences with religion and faith, but also maybe more importantly about his experiences of grief and loss, having recently lost his dad. Um, and he talks really movingly and powerfully uh, about some of that stuff. So I'm just, I'm hugely grateful to Jesse for giving me time um, and for giving me a really rich conversation. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm reaching out to Jesse was really me pushing my luck and I can't really believe that it paid off. Um, so if you're a regular audience member, you know what to expect from the kind of conversation that's coming up. And if you're a new one, I hope you find it as interesting and engaging as I did. Um, I'm sure that you will love everything that Jesse has to say um, and just the person who he is. So um, also, by the way, if you're watching, Jesse, thank you so much um, for making the time. I'm really grateful to you. Cool. Look, I said I was going to keep this short, um, so I'm going to wrap it up now. 
I've said everything I need to say. I'll see you back on the other side after my conversation with Jesse Thorne. Bye. Um, so having just said that I'm super excited to have you on and uh, it kind of feels like a little step up for my little show, I just wondered... I thought it could be interesting just to ask you to start with, can you remember like when you were first starting in radio and NPR and podcasting and that kind of stuff, what, whether there was a moment or an interview with somebody who you kind of had that same kind of feeling about like, holy shit, I can't believe I'm interviewing this guy. Like I, I know like recently you interviewed Letterman and that, that was awesome to listen to. I really enjoyed that. And you, you kind of gushed a little bit about that, but what, what was the like, what was the first time for you that you had that feeling of like, fuck, I can't believe I'm talking to this guy. I mean, there, that happened. I mean, we couldn't believe that we could get anyone to come on our show and we really did basically trick them into coming on our show. I mean, we didn't lie, but (laughs) everything, everything short of lying. Um, so there were many in the early years, like almost anyone who came on in the early years, I couldn't believe that they were doing it. But um, there is actually a moment related to an interview that I actually w- didn't participate in on my show that was felt transformative, which was David Cross from, you know, Mr. Show and Arrested Development and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um was doing his first stand-up tour. And I don't mean his, he had obviously been doing stand-up for quite a long time, but it was his first time touring. He was touring with a band um, and playing rock clubs. And that was, this was a really big deal at the time. I mean, the tour was of modest size, but it was a, it was the first comic who had really committed to getting booked into what were basically music venues instead of playing comedy clubs. And he was doing a show in Santa Cruz at a club called the catalyst. And we thought, well, we'll try and book him on our show. And I remember emailing his publicist and hearing back from her, you know, David loves doing this kind of stuff. He says he, he really likes to do college radio. So I will try and make this happen for you. And I had gotten an internship at XM Satellite Radio in Washington, D.C. And so uh, like two weeks before this show was scheduled to happen, I was on an airplane to our nation's capital. And the last few weeks of the semester were covered by uh, my then co-hosts, Jordan and Jean, and our friend, Brian Heater, who's still a friend of ours, and, and is a very successful podcaster with a, a show called R-I-Y-L. And, um, and I got a voice message when I was in Union Station in Washington, D.C., standing in the middle of this huge train station on my like Motorola Razor phone. Um, I got a voice message and it said, hi, this is David Cross. Uh, I'm, I'm going to come on your show. I just wanted to call and make the arrangements for the details. And (laughs) I think I like called my mom or something. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) I was totally blown away. 
And, um, you know, as it turned out, I, like I said, I was in Washington, D.C., so I didn't even get to do the interview itself. And I know that Gene and Jordan and Brian have ever since been mortified about how it went. I thought it went fine. I okay. heard the tape. I, they did a good job. But, um, but that was like, you know, we had, Gene had lived, grew up near this video store or video rental place in the Valley in, in the LA area where you could rent and buy bootleg VHS tapes. Okay. So they had like extra long play tapes of all the episodes of Mr. Show long before it came out on DVD. And so one time Gene came home from, it came back to Santa Cruz where we went to college from going to, uh, going home to Sherman Oaks and he brought these VHS tapes. And one of them was every episode of Tenacious D. Uh, one of them was every episode of Mr. Show and w- like three of them or four of them was every episode of L- the Larry Sanders show. And I borrowed these tapes from Gene and like, there is no question that they changed my life. Um, and so to actually hear from David Cross was absolutely extraordinary. I would say as far as people that I actually talked to, that I actually interviewed myself, um, I can think of two. My very first interview that I ever did, not even for my show, was with a hip hop group called Black Alicious. And um, Gift of Gab, the MC from that group, just passed away. Uh, very young. He was 49, I think. And... My friend Abel from the college radio station said, hey, I know you're a big hip hop head. I have this, you know, Blackalicious said they're coming through to do a show and they want to be on the college radio station. So I'm supposed to interview them, but I'm scared. Will you come and do it with me? And I was like, oh, I'm scared too, but sure. I'm sure we did a terrible (laughs) job, but it was so thrilling to get to talk to these, these two guys that I admired so much. And then on our show, in the very beginning we had both Matt Walsh and Matt Besser from the Upright Citizens Brigade. Oh, yeah, and, cool. and this was when their TV show was on TV. And we just, e- we found their website and just emailed, you know, info at uprightcitizensbrigade.net or whatever. And they both were so generous with their time and their thoughts. And, um, you know, they treated us like we were real professionals. <laughs> and... It was amazing. We also one time off air, and this is in my mind because I interviewed Patton Oswalt the other day along with his wife, Meredith. And very when I was like 22, maybe, Patton invited me and Jordan and my wife, Teresa, out to dinner in San Francisco for New Year's Eve. And he had been on our show maybe twice already and was already one of the great stand-up comedians in the world. And we were like, of course we will go to dinner with you, Patton. He was in town to do a big new year's Eve show. And we get there to, to this dinner and it's us and uh, my friend Bucky Sinister, who's a poet and a comedian here in LA. And, uh, but wasn't, wasn't my friend yet at the time. And uh, this guy who founded a magazine about drinking. Um, And then it was uh, 
Patton, Dana Gould, <laughs> Greg Proops, their wives, and Dana's then wife uh, was a super agent who became <laughs> the head of HBO. Wow. Uh, Dave Eggers and his wife, Venda Levita, who's a brilliant novelist herself. <laughs> and... <laughs> It was like, what? <laughs> what? And I remember Patton saying to Dana and Greg Proops, and I mean, we were like, oh my God, that's Dana Gould, producer from The Simpsons. Yeah. And one of the funniest joke minds of all time. Like, oh my God, that's Greg Proops from Whose Line Is It Anyway? Yeah. And um and I remember Patton saying to them, These guys have this really cool radio show where they like they talk about comedy and they talk to comedians like it's a thing that really matters. And it was just to have someone have noticed (laughs) (laughs) was such a huge thing. And for it to be someone that we admired as much as we admired Patton was like, I can't even believe I'm sitting here, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's such, I I mean, on a much smaller scale that, that thing of being noticed, um, you know, when I started putting this show out, I figured because it's a it's a it's a podcast about spirituality and meaning and that kind of stuff, which we'll, we'll come to. Um, and I figured, OK, some of my religious friends will listen to it and some of them will like it and some of them will hate it because it's not conservative enough and they'll only listen to one episode. Um, but actually, what I found is that the people who listen to it are, are actually not the people who I expected at all to listen to it. The people from work, people who just kind of find it interesting hearing people talking about spirituality, religion, meaning, and that kind of stuff, even if they themselves don't, you know, aren't into that kind of thing. And I get messages on Instagram from people to say, Hey, your last episode was really nice. And every time, and I think they must think I'm being fake, but with real sincerity, every time I feel like, wow, really? You listen to it. Why? Why did you do that? But thank you so much. It's really cool. That Yeah. Just that kind of feeling of, being noticed by people who you wouldn't necessarily expect to be noticed by and being appreciated by them is a, it's a real buzz. It's a, it's cool. Especially Um, when you're working really hard. I mean, we were really busting our asses, especially me and Jordan. And like, I often say, you know, one of the reasons that Jordan and I have been partners for 20 years, which we now have mm. is that, you know, Jordan is really talented and I'm skilled, you know, mm-hmm. um, and Jordan is also skilled. And like, that's one reason, but like the real reason is because both of us are the person in the other one's life who has always shown up for work. Yeah. Um, you know, we did improv together. We did sketch comedy together. We've done the show almost interrupted for that whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, our, our, like our friend Gene, God bless him, uh, is as talented as, as either of us. And, you know, he went through some hard times when we were younger and just didn't, wasn't reliable. Right. And I think Jordan and I have just always busted ass, you know? Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. Both of us this whole time, you know, neither of us knew anything about the entertainment industry or how to get into it or yeah anything. And we just just kept our nose to the grindstone and now here we are 20 years later only somewhat failed (laughs) at the top of a podcasting empire that's a that's a success by anyone's measure i would have said (laughs) yeah um 
So, like I said, I mentioned that this is a podcast about spirituality and meaning and that kind of thing. And um, my, I so I got into it because last year or the year before, I finished a, a doctorate. I did my doctoral thesis in theology and really enjoyed it. But also, at the time, I was working for a church and uh, doing my studies made me feel like I don't really want to work there anymore. Um, you know, I got to thinking quite critically about it. Um, but I loved the, and I still love the opportunities that I had in that job to have conversations with people about what matters to them, about what's important, where they find meaning and what they think about those kinds of big questions. And so I kind of thought I'd, I'd create this podcast as a place for people to have those kinds of conversations that often, I mean, you know, I, I, I think this is potentially especially true in British culture. We're all very anxious about having these kinds of conversations publicly because we're all very worried about offending people and that kind of stuff. So I thought it'd be cool to kind of create a space to get diverse views about, you know, what gives life meaning, what, how we understand spirituality, faith, you know, so I've had everyone from atheists to Sikhs to uh, a guy a couple of months ago who believes he can communicate with people after death to uh, you know christians you know absolutely everything in between and i always find it's really fun to kind of explore what people believe and to disagree with each other and that kind of thing but to do it in a way that's kind of affirming and positive um and i guess that that is leading me into a question which is kind of where are you with that kind of stuff like where how do you understand spirituality and meaning and that kind of thing like i yeah what's your kind of framework well, I used to work in a church too. Did you? Um, yeah, I did for a few years. Um, my dad and sometimes I went to a church in San Francisco called uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa, which is an Episcopalian church. And I don't know how much you know about the Episcopalian church in the United States, but there is this uh, bitter feud in the Episcopalian church between um some conservative or traditionalist uh, faction and uh, a and a progressive inclusive faction mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know that almost led to the almost led to the bifurcation of the church yeah. a few years ago um, and all I, I will say about St. Gregory of Nyssa in San Francisco it is really clear that it's in the progressive faction. Okay, awesome. Cool. <laughs> like I had gone to I had gone to Episcopalian church as a kid and my our our bishop who would, you know, swing by every once in a while, Bishop Swing, uh no pun intended, I uh <laughs> was and I presume is if he's if he's still alive, gay. Okay. Um but at St. Gregory's um it was you know, it was founded by gay priests who wanted to build a church that was uh, inclusive of and um, learned from both the world's forms of Christianity and other forms of faith. Mm -hmm. So these guys were real scholars of religious history and faith history. And the main feature of the church was this rotunda where icons had been painted by this artist and the icons were dancing together. 
cool. And dancing together was a big part of the service. There was a there was a sort of and I don't remember there was some kind of historical precedent for this, but um you would you would link arms or actually put a hand on the person next to you's shoulder and dance in a sort of spiral this special step um okay. as part of the as part of the service. And that's what the saints were doing together. And the saints included many you know, whatever, St. John or whatever, mm-hmm. um, St. Gregory, uh, but also included many non-Christians and even a few non-humans. <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> there was a bear. I don't remember what the, why the bear was a saint, but it was, it was important in like Coptic Christianity or something like that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like I remember like Malcolm X was there. Uh, the mathematician Paul Erdos was there. Uh, one wow. of the most important mathematicians of the 20th century. And so it was this whole thing and they had a, you know, they had a liturgical practice that they had codified and like other churches would call us and ask for the, you know, ask for our hymnal and, you know, ask for the, and so it was really a wild, it was really a wild spot. Um, And my dad went there because he, you know, he really identified as a liberation theologian and um, had grown up going to church and having church be a refuge for him from abuse at home. Mm -hmm. And um, he had considered becoming a priest. Um, He ultimately (laughs) decided that it was, that it would piss his parents off more if uh, he joined the Navy. So he joined the (laughs) Navy instead, uh, which was a real bad mistake. I mean, maybe if he had become a priest, uh, he he would never have ended up with my mom and I wouldn't exist. So I'm I'm glad he joined the Navy in that sense, but the the Navy really messed up his life. Um, But like he, and he also like, he, he ran an NGO. So the church was sort of the home of his, of his organizing and fundraising and so on. Wow. So I worked there as a office assistant. Um, I worked there as a daycare person, um, you know, for Sunday school and stuff. Cool. Um, and I worked there as an, as an events manager. So people would rent the church, um, you know, early music groups and weddings and, all kinds of things would, would rent the church for, for events. And it was my job to make sure all the chairs got put away. And, um, it was a great job and, and really good people. Um, now that said, <laughs> one of the distinguishing features of this church was I, they were pretty chill about the fact that I don't believe in God. <laughs> 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 like it's not like I was like going around being like f you God doesn't exist um, in your up your nose with a rubber hose because there's no God nothing's hey, waiting yeah. for us after we die um I was also nice about it because i was I was grateful to be working with you know kind and and principled people and so forth yeah um but yeah, I've I've never really believed in God myself, <laughs> even when I was going to church more regularly as a kid. Um, and you know, I also, I should say, like, my dad had had, you know, my dad's life was dedicated to activism and organizing, and he had had very mixed experiences in that area in the church. Mm. And um, 
my mom had a very ambivalent relationship about going to church. I, I think she she was more interested in the cultural practice than in religiosity. Okay. Um, and and I think she just associated it with her mother, who she loved a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but my my stepmother. Uh, who, you know, married my father when I was very young, when I was like seven or something like that. Um, Grew up in Northern Ireland in Belfast. And so all of her experiences of faith were either, and she she grew up Catholic. So all of her experiences of faith were either abuse um, or war. (laughs) Wow. So, you know, like she... When that, um, what, what was that movie called? Wilhelmina or something like that with, uh, that Steve Coogan co-wrote. Oh, yeah. 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 So that was about, um, uh, that was about babies being taken away from their mothers by, um, uh, by nuns. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like I mentioned that movie to my stepmother and she was like, yeah, I knew, I don't remember what it was. Four people that happened to. Wow. Um, you know, like my stepmother will mention being assaulted or attempted sexually assaulted by police many times in her teenage years. Um, you know, she had direct family members who were in jail, direct family members who, um, I mean, a story my dad told me one time is, um, when he and my stepmother were first had first gotten together, they were hanging out and watching the news hour, the the PBS evening news program. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a story about a funeral bombing uh, in Northern Ireland. And he was like, and that's how your stepmother found out her cousin was killed. Wow. Um, So she hated religion. (laughs) Yeah, still does. Yeah, the vehemence that cannot be overstated. (laughs) I mean, the whole thing basically made her an anarchist. Yeah, but um, the centrality of religion in these—I mean, you know, like it was people whose identity was built around Protestantism uh, being abusive to and and killing members of her family Mm. um and the structures of catholicism um and the representatives of catholicism also being abusive (laughs) yeah yeah um that didn't leave a lot of room for (laughs) anything else you know like i think she generally i'm speaking for her i think she generally identifies with irish republicanism like i think she believes that Ireland is one nation, but, um, I don't think that, I I think that she has nothing but resentment for the religious underpinnings of of those, you know, of those power structures. Yeah. So that's, that's interesting that you, so you grew up at least for part of your life with a dad who at the very least was sympathetic towards religion at some point, at least quite into it. And a stepmom who was the opposite, like really not into it at all, like with, with really good reason. Um, yeah. So what, like, what, do, what, what does that coupling equal in you? Do you know what I mean? Like what, where, where, do, how do you feel about it now? 
as a product of that growing up? I mean, one of the things that I remember most, so like I have generally very fond memories of the community of the church that I went to as a kid. Um, so I, I went to church mostly with my mom, um, but before that with both my parents when they were together when I was a toddler mm -hmm. um, at an Episcopal church in the very urban neighborhood in which I grew up, um, you know, inner city neighborhood the mission in San Francisco. And we had a very kind priest and I had, it was a very caring community and my godfather was a parishioner there and my mom had a garden there um, and so on. And I got married there later. I mean, decades after I had, <laughs> it was, it was, you know, 15 years since I had been there, but I called them up and said, Hey, can I get married there? And they said, yes, of course, we won't charge you anything. Cool. Um, so I had generally good memories of that place. One of the most vivid memories that I have of St. Gregory's, um, was that there were a few parishioners who wanted to start a food bank there. And they had these, silver Coptic crosses that came from, I think it was, I think it was Ethiopia mm -hmm. that were used in the services. So they would wear like vestments of uh, Christian groups from all over the world sort of in rotation. And they had taken these elements from, from services and, and liturgies from, from all over the world. And one of them was these Coptic crosses and they were silver. So they were very valuable. And there was this dispute at the church about whether to have the food bank, because what if stuff got stolen? Mm -hmm. And I remember my dad being enraged. I remember my dad being like, pardon my French here, but I remember my dad being like these fucking bullshit liberals. Yeah. That's the whole fucking point of having a church. Yeah. And he would say that in church. Cool. <laughs> like there was, you know, there was kind of a testimony portion of the service. Um, and he would say things like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't appreciate this until later, but after he passed away, I, you know, he had not been going regularly to church for 10 years, probably by the time he passed away because of his health and, you know, for whatever other reasons. Mm -hmm. And I heard from five or six people who I didn't know who told me that my dad was a hero of theirs because he spoke up about those things in church. Wow. And wow. I think he saw himself as like an oppositional figure in that context, but they saw him as like an essential part of the church community, mm -hmm. that he was like the moral corrective. And um, so, yeah, so I, I mean, I feel like from that experience of working in that church and being in that church, I, I not only got a sense of the possibility of Christianity as a force for good in the world. And, you know, like knowing, like my, my mom was really good friends with a Catholic priest, Father Jack, who was the priest of the 
um, Catholic church near our house. Again, like the, the Catholic church particularly was like 90% immigrants from Central America. Mm-hmm. And Father Jack had like made his bones as a priest cycling around South America to minister to people um, in the Andes with, you know, ice in his beard. Like he was that kind of guy. Wow, cool. Just an extraordinary, I mean, talk about a liberation theologian. And so like, I knew these really good people and I believed that the people at St. Gregory's were also good people. Um, But I also understood about the limitations of, I could see in front of me the limitations of the idea of like liberalism as a matter of being a person of goodwill. Yeah. Um, And I think I learned a lot from that. I mean, th- that's something that you learn about living in San Francisco or living in Santa Cruz, where I lived for a little while, you mm-hmm. know, places where many people think it's sufficient to be of goodwill. Yeah. Um, but certainly in a, in a faith context, like, you know, the purpose of <laughs> theoretically anyway, right. The, 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 the purpose of Christianity is to do good works, you know, yeah. like yeah. people, some people see it other ways, Um, but you know, if, if your, if your goal is to be like Christ, like it's, um, then your job is to extend compassion and service to others. And, um, so I think I saw the limitations of that. Like, I think there was a certain extent to which in that church community, it was like, well, we talk about diversity a lot. So we're the good guys on that front or we allow gay people to be priests. So we're the good guys on that front. Yeah. Um, And those things are better than bigotry. Of course. (laughs) I mean, if those are the options. (laughs) Yeah. But it was like, it was like, to what extent is this group of people about, improving the lives of people in their community and to what extent is this group of people about offering absolution to people who have extraordinary privilege mm-hmm. um and i don't like honestly i don't think that offering people absolution by asking them to be more moral in their direct actions and be more considerate of who they are in the world is like bad yeah um it's just limited i I really resonate with that. And um, I, so I grew up in a fairly conservative church setting, um, you know, with all of the homophobia and strict kind of rules around sex and sexuality and beliefs about the afterlife and all that kind of stuff. And then while I was studying, I was working for a very liberal kind of inclusive church. And again, it was through the process of studying and thinking and kind of critically reflecting kind of getting to the point of thinking you know neither of those poles quite does it you know so on the one end you've got a church which seems to be defined by actually judgmentalism um you know casting people out creating boundaries between us and them which seems you know if you just take those four books you know about jesus life to be really just very much the opposite of what he was about And then on the liberal end of the church, you kind of have kind of what you've just described, which is a kind of very basic, well, you know, just be nice. Let's let's just be nice. Can we just be nice to people? Which feels kind of like, well, if that's all it is, 
I don't need to come and sit here and be bored for an hour on Sunday mornings. You know, like every everyone knows that it's nice to be nice to people. Um, and I mean, as as someone who as someone who grew up um, with a stepmother who had grown up Catholic and had had that experience, and my father's one of my father's greatest mentors was actually a Catholic priest um, named Raleigh. Raleigh Jones and um, like having had these experiences of the Catholic faith where these things are particularly intense. I mean, I think if you have a criticism of, if you have a criticism of Protestantism as it's, as it's practiced in the Western world, it's that, um, you know, they're sort of going through the motions. Mm -hmm. Um, I think in the, in the Catholic church, people are making choices and, um, uh, you know, like I saw both that, you know, at the Catholic, at the time, the Catholic church was working very actively against the rights of gay people, uh, against the rights of women, um, uh, uh, you know, so on and so forth. Um, but I also saw that, you know, in, even in San Francisco, leaving aside the the underdeveloped world, um, even in San Francisco, like Catholic charities was one of the most powerful anti-poverty organizations that existed. Yeah. And it was like, and you know, there were, there were Protestant, you know, Glide Memorial Church is the remains the biggest force for, you know, in, in, uh, support of people without homes in San Francisco. But, um, you know, Catholic charities got a lot done for poor people. They really cared about poor people. And, you know, you can see it in the Pope right now. Like mm-hmm. there's certainly things I disagree with about the Pope, but I believe in the structure of the Catholic church, but like, I believe the Pope cares about poor people around the world actually. Yeah. Yeah. And like wants to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and wants to be a voice on behalf of, you know, the meek. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think I think that all that much about the last few popes before him, but, um, <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> like, not that I don't mean that they, that they hated poor people or anything, but it just wasn't their priority. Yeah. Um, yeah. but, uh, but you know, like you can see, I just, I, I mentioned this only cause you see it very vividly, right? Like, um, you know, I think a lot about, you mentioned having a sick on the show and like, I think a lot about the sick cultural and religious practice of welcoming strangers, yeah. um, which is central to who they are, mm-hmm. you know, like the expectation is that you will feed hungry people yeah. and there's no, there's no gatekeeping on it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like the expectation is that if someone shows up, you give them food and yeah. it's not because they're poor. You don't check whether they're poor enough. You don't check whether they already have food in their backpack and they're just trying to get over on you or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it's just that uh, if someone asks for food, they need food. And like, I think of, um, and you should give them food if you have it, like you should share your food with them. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I think also a lot of, I'm just like listing priests I know, right? But the guy, <laughs> the guy who married my father and stepmother was uh, a priest named Jesse James. Um, and Jesse James mostly worked with um, poor and unhoused people in San Francisco. And I remember my dad told me this story about Jesse one time that Jesse would take anybody out to lunch who asked him for money. And, um, and if he had money, he would give it to people mm-hmm. who asked him. And, you know, my dad had been homeless and was in recovery and, you know, he understood what it was to be an addict and so forth. But my dad told me he asked Jesse James what, what he says if somebody says like, well, they're just going to use it on drugs, you know? And, um, what Jesse James said is, well, you know, junkies need to fix. Mm -hmm. That's a great answer. Like the, that he was not interested in, moral gatekeeping of taking care of people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like a, addiction is an illness that could, that could come to any of us based on our brain chemistry and our circumstances. Right. Like, yeah. And ultimately addiction is a source of suffering. And while the best solution <laughs> to addiction is, um, is to solve the problem. There's, you know, you can't let the, you can't let the perfect get in the way of the good, right? Like if there's a chance that they're going to use it for drugs, it's because they need the drugs. Yeah. Yeah. You know, nobody's using, nobody's, nobody's out on the street asking for money to do drugs for fun. Yeah. You know and what the, I mean? That, that moral gatekeeping, that's a really good phrase and says, says so much. Uh, I, 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 a few years ago uh, went to a Sikh, uh, Gurdwara in London and was fed for free and sat on the floor with a really nice curry uh, along with some homeless people and some business people and there was no like you said no questions asked about you know do you really deserve this do you really need this whatever um, and I was just busy thinking with your story about Jesse James um, you know there's there's lots of people who I know and actually I, I think I've, I have probably said this myself who who kind of say you know, you shouldn't really give homeless people money because there's a good chance that they'll just spend it on drugs. And looking back on that attitude now, it feels like such a hateful attitude because, well, for one thing, you're making a judgment about that person and their decision, that person who you don't know at all, that because they look a certain way and don't have money, that therefore they must be addicted to drugs. And for two, also if you give them money and they decide to spend it on drugs, that's, that's their choice. They have agency. They're, they're human beings. And yeah, just that kind of like, no, no, I will actually choose to, to not help this person at all because the risk of me helping them and them doing something I disapprove with, uh, with my help is too great. Feels again, so kind of like, you know, I mean, I don't know anything about Sikhism really, apart from that one experience. Um, but I, I, I do know something about the 
Christian story and the Bible and that kind of stuff. And that way of talking about people and two people seems so far removed from the way in which Christ spoke to people on the outskirts kind of of society. Um, but it's a real, it's a, it's a paradox because like you've just said, actually my, the other experience that I have of religion, conservative and liberal alike, is that for the most part, the religious people who I know genuinely care about poverty and genuinely, you know, want to help people. And it comes from a good place. And cynically, you might say, oh, that's because they're scared of hell. But actually, I don't believe that that's true. I think it is a real genuine care. Um, and there's a question, I guess, there's like a macro question and a micro question. So on, on the big scale, how much good does religion do versus how much does it fuck the world up? And on a micro scale, on an individual scale, I'd ask the same question for myself. How much good has religion done for me and how much has it fucked me up? And I'm saying this as a, like, I'm about to start a job as a hospital chaplain. Um, so like I, I'm a Christian, um, but just that kind of, yeah, it's so hard to kind of, I, I, I don't think religion is something that's wholly one thing or the other, you know, that there's, it does a whole lot of really serious good, but also there's a whole lot of really serious fucking people up, um, which is hard to reconcile. I mean, I think ultimately there is an extent to which for me as an atheist, um, if the fundamental, if the fundamental benefit of faith is that it gives people comfort about death, then like, that's kind of like, that's a big positive. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And again, I say that, I say that as an atheist who's never been able to get comfort about death from, from faith. Mm -hmm. But like, I, you know, I think of when my father's mother, um, who was a complicated person, um, like when she was dying or my mother's mother, when she was dying, um, they both were able to die peacefully because they found comfort in their faith. Mm. Um, and I mean, it's something that I'm sure <laughs> I don't need to lecture a, a uh, uh, an aspiring hospital chaplain about this, but, um, but like, uh, like that is such an essential, like from an atheist perspective, if that is the, the greatest source of the impulse to faith and the greatest service to humanity of faith, like, I think that's pretty good. And that's mm. even leaving aside good works and stuff. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So like one of the things like we have a, um, on my podcast network, we have, uh, what they call a skeptic podcast, um, uh, called Oh No, Ross and Carrie. I listen to it. And yeah, I'm a fan. Yeah. And, and Ross and Carrie are both really kind, wonderful people. And I hate the skeptic community. Um, as a, as a painting very broadly, even as an atheist myself, like mm -hmm. so much of it is about like scoring points on people and their most yeah. fundamental beliefs. 
it's like, geez, well, you like your so your whole thing is just like being a dick. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's not all of the skeptic community, obviously, but it's a it's a big, you know, it's that kind of like Richard Dawkins thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, and w- before they joined the network, I was worried because they had been suggested to me and I had met Carrie and I was like, well, Carrie's nice but she was friends with someone who worked at our network and they were doing this show and it was getting a little traction and, and they wanted to join max fun. And I was like, I don't know if I want a skeptics podcast on max fun. Yeah. Um, and I, when I talked to Ross and Carrie, what I learned wa- about them was that, you know, while I think they are both atheists and they're both identify as skeptics, like, their backgrounds and their way of being in the world had an extraordinary generosity towards Mm -hmm. different faith systems. And even things that you and I might consider to be genuinely kooky. And honestly, like at the end of the day, there are a few religious faiths (laughs) that taken rationally are not kooky. That's why they're faiths. 100%, Um, But, you know, like... (laughs) Like, there's a part of me that like wants to make fun of the like planet where you go to live with your family after you die, if you're Mormon. Sure. But like, on the other hand, like that's not any kookier than, you know, <laughs> you know, the fish and the loaves or whatever, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. 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 For the guy um, who raised from the dead. Yeah. So uh, like their, their decency and compassion to particularly people who practice these faiths, you know, they're, they're not compassionate to, you know, the occasional charlatan they run into who's trying to take advantage of people yeah, intentionally. But like that made me comfortable with that. And that kind of is my broad feeling about religion is that most of the people I know who practice religion uh, do so because they want to become a better person in the world mm-hmm. and do so because they want to find comfort in the things that are very difficult and painful to try and explain with rationality. Um, and you know, they also do it for kind of cultural reasons, of course, which can sometimes be problematic, but like mostly people I know (laughs) who are faithful, it like makes them a better person, you know, even if it's imperfect. Um, you know, that said, I don't live in a place where there's, I don't live in a war zone based on faith mostly. I mean, I think mm-hmm. you could argue that my, my country has done some faith-based imperialism, but, um, Hey, I'm um, from Great Britain, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, like I'm, right. I'm not, I, I'm not here on the streets in the midst of a religious war, you know, except to the extent that like, um, you know, six get harassed for being Muslims. Yeah. <laughs> even yeah. though they're not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But like, you know, there's, there's religious bigotry, but, but it's, it's not rending the streets in twain. Yeah. Um, so, you know, easy for me to say about, about faith being good, but th- that's my general feeling, you know, like my godfather who still sees it in part as his job to be my godfather, although he's super chill about it. Um, you know, he also, you know, I haven't seen him in person in 10 years, and I've probably seen him in person three times since I became an adult, mm-hmm. but you know, he sends me a birthday card every year and sends me a Christmas card every year. Mm-hmm. He's 80 some years old now. Um, 
And it's because, you know, he loves me and he loves, you know, he's gay. It was very painful for him to find this in his life as a man who grew up in the, you know, in the sixties, fifties and sixties. But, um, you know, he loves, he loves God's love, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And God bless him for it to to use. (laughs) <laughs> to you said the atheist <laughs> yeah well god or whatever bless him for yeah. it right um, exactly and i mean on judge john hodgman i think the reason that you landed on that phrase right is like john and i are both atheists um and like we sometimes people think oh we in it's a courtroom show for people who are listening to this show and we have a, you know, we have a swearing in in the United States, you put your hand on the Bible and raise your right mm-hmm. hand and, uh, or your, or the Quran or whatever text you choose. There's different choices, but usually it's the Bible. And, um, you say, you know, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? So help you God. And, uh, we added the, or whatever. And we didn't, it's like once in a while, somebody thinks we added the, or whatever, because it's like an eye rolling or whatever, you know, like, Oh yeah. Yeah. But what it actually is, is it's a, we just wanted to make that act an inclusive act. Right. So it is what you are reverent for, whatever it is that you are reverent for, Mm -hmm. um, you know, your family's love or God or, uh, you know, uh, Beelzebub or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We'll take it, you know? Yeah. And that, I mean, and you're right. That's exactly, I I remember, it must be maybe four years ago. My friend Angus told me about this podcast. I probably quite like called Judge uh, Judge John Hodgman. Um, And in the first episode I listened to, I heard you swearing in the litigants and saying, so help you God or whatever. And thinking, oh, cool. I really like that. And uh, this podcast originally was, it had a different name. It was called The General Speech, which was named after an obscure scene from a film called Babette's Feast, in which the general stands up and addresses this crowd of religious people. And it's a really beautiful speech. Um, But the name never quite fit because it sounded a little bit kind of militaristic and it's not really a speech it's a conversation and unless you happen to have read this book or seen this film which nobody has um it doesn't really make sense to anybody so i was kind of thinking i needed a new name and my mind went to that awesome phrase god or whatever uh, which i don't see as being dismissive at all but exactly what you've just described it's a i want the podcast to be like an inclusive space where people can talk about god or whatever um so thanks thanks for that and th- thanks for not suing me <laughs> uh, for borrowing it without asking i appreciate it um what i was gonna ask about going back slightly by, to what you by the way I, I just want you to know that my uh my friend guy is currently writing a remake of that film for alexander payne <laughs> no way really yeah. wow we'll but oh man maybe i should have kept that title after all maybe that would have got more more could have been your could have been your path to being friends with Guy Branham, the smartest, funniest guy on earth. Oh, shit. I can't, I can't believe I'm... Uh, you oh, blew wow. it big time, Tim. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm hanging out with Jesse Thornton, so that's. Uh, I'll take that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm number um, two. I am 
conscious that I don't want to keep you for more than the hour that I promised to keep you. Um, but I just thought, I mean, there's loads of stuff that I wanted to ask you about. But one thing which I thought was interesting was going back to what you were saying earlier on about religion and helping people to face their mortality, to face death. Um, you, I've heard you speaking a little bit on different podcasts about how difficult this past year has been for you uh, with COVID, but also with your own experience of bereavement. I think you lost your dad. Is that, is that right? Um, yeah. I mean, I actually, I kind of had a string of deaths. Um, my dad was the real kind of piece de resistance. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, like maybe I guess now about two years ago, um, one of my best friends from childhood um, who had been my friend since preschool and his mom went to church, went to the St. Gregory's with my dad, but um, also he and I went to high school together and, you know, we weren't really close as adults, but um, was one of the, you know, three most important childhood friends I had mm -hmm. um, uh, died of an accidental overdose. Um, and I didn't even know he was using. And I had this experience of going to this, wasn't really a funeral. This was just before COVID. Um, it wasn't really a funeral. It was like, a, it was just a little thing before he got put into the incinerator, you know, and mm -hmm. um, just seeing all these people that I knew from, from high school and from my childhood and, and all these people who had loved him when he as an adult. And uh, he was a wonderful, very gifted artist. And um, so I had that experience of this completely unexpected loss. Um, and then uh, my my mother's best friend who I knew as my aunt and was, my mom has a very ad hoc family, um, very, very intimate and deep relationships with friends um, who, because my mom was a single mom was, were very, very much family to me. And so my aunt Claudia um, died of uh, cancer and I had, I had gotten to see her in Washington DC where she lived, um, where my mom is from. Um, before she passed away uh, at a Judge John Hodgman show, and she te <laughs> she texted me like ten, ten minutes before the show. She's like, she's like, she texted me, "Where'd you find all these white people in Washington D.C.?" <laughs> <laughs> um, chocolate, Chocolate City, my ass. Um, but. Um, that was a really brutal one um, mm. because she wasn't all that old. She's a little younger than my mom. So she, you know, she was 70 ish, but, but just the most vital human being I've ever known in my life and a very important person to me. And, you know, my, I was worrying about what would happen to my cousin. Cause my, my aunt was her, was her only parent. And my cousin has all these learning disabilities and, um, you know, she ended up being laid off because of COVID because she worked in daycare and everybody, you know, all the daycare shut down and was, would she be able to find a place to live that she could afford and in DC and blah, 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 blah. Right. And my aunt's funeral got canceled in the first, 
I had this week that was supposed to be my aunt's funeral and my other godfather's funeral. Not the one I mentioned before, but a guy who was sort of my mom's closest mentor, who was a, he was both a GP and a psychiatrist Mm -hmm. and led a teaching hospital. And one day when my wife and I were, were having lunch with him, she was talking about going to law school and he goes, I really enjoyed law school. I'm like, what? You went to law school? (laughs) And apparently after he finished his residency, he was bored. So he he finished law school at night during his first like five years of being a doctor. What? Just because he was curious about it. Anyway, Simon died and I was supposed to go to his funeral. and And Claudia, my aunt, had asked me to pick the music for her funeral. And um, she had sold me, she had asked me to help her get rid of her records. And um, I talked to, I had a friend who used to be a record dealer in DC and he said, you know, people are just going to try and take her. Like, I don't know anybody that's not just going to try and take her. And so... Hmm. And I wanted to be helpful, so I just sent her. I just sent her an email and said, "Hey, my friend said everybody's going to try and take you. Why don't I just give you? Why don't I just give you a check for ten thousand dollars, and um, you know, you can send them to me when you're dead. <laughs> you know what I mean? Wow. It's <laughs> like I don't need them right now. I'll take them in eighteen months when you're croaked. You know, <laughs> enjoy them. Enjoy them while you're still here." And, um, anyway, I was supposed to pick the music for her funeral and she had sent me this email. She's like, I know you love the same music I do, but just remember, I don't love rap as much as you. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, put in some extra Stevie or whatever. (laughs) And, um, so both of those funerals were the first week of the COVID shutdown. Wow. And, um, and then not that long after that, um, I had to take my dad into hospice with my stepmother and um, it was early enough in COVID that there was no way to visit him. So, and I knew that I wouldn't be able to make it up in time. You know, they were, they were making it so that when the person was really on their deathbed, that, that, that a relative could visit for an hour. That was the rule. And, but I knew that there was no way that when he got to that point that I would be able to make it up to San Francisco, San Francisco from Los Angeles to see him. So I knew as I was dropping him off at the hospice, that it was the last time I would see him. And, um, he didn't understand that he was dying because he had progressive dementia. Um, so in a funny way, he was very much himself. Mm -hmm. Um, just, you know, in loops of 45 seconds. Yeah. Um, and he was just really happy to see me. He was really happy that I came to visit. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he didn't understand that it was our last goodbye when I dropped him off. He really, he understood where he was and stuff. He just thought he was going to the doctors or he was used to going to the VA for, to go to the doctor. And, um, 
you know, he gave me a big hug and I dropped him off. And then I pretty much had to drive home to LA and I was driving down the coast, which is the long way from San Francisco to LA, but it's beautiful. And, um, one of my kids was having, um, uh, a health crisis and um, I had stopped in um, I had stopped where Hearst Castle is on the California coast, and there's a beach there that elephant seals go to. Mm-hmm. And I had been listening over and over to this song that my childhood best friend had sent me and my childhood best friend's dad died when we were teenagers. He fell off a, a scaffold and I had like, you know, I spent a couple of nights at his house when his dad died and it was just, you know, and I had sought him out because I just knew he knew about dead dads, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, he had sent me this song called Clay Pigeons by Blaze Foley. And I had just listened to it over and over driving down the coast and you know crying a lot and stuff and i got to i got to where hearst castle is and i was out on the sort of pier there looking over the beach where the elephant seals are and having fond memories of seeing the elephant seals with my mom and my grandmother when i was a kid and just elephant seals are just amazing beasts yeah. just sort of in awe of <laughs> how crazy and amazing nature is right and yeah. And starting to like feel a little peace inside myself. And then I got this text message from my wife that said, where are you? And I said, oh, I'm driving down. I'm just, I'm, you know, I've made it as far as Hearst Castle. And she said, I need you at home. And um, so, you know, we didn't get to have a funeral for my dad. He died a few weeks later. Mm-hmm. I got to talk to him, you know, on the phone. And... um and that, you know, that health crisis is still happening in in my house, and and has affected my other kids, and of sort of just been an an emergency in my in my life since for however long it's been a year, eighteen months, and um, it's like you find you don't realize how much you can do you don't realize how much you have inside you. Like I had never faced adversity like this before and you don't realize how much you can do, but you also, it's also really hard when that's not enough, you know? Yeah. I'm sure. Like I could, I can't, I can't make my kid be okay. I can't keep my dad from dying. I can't, care for my, you know, I have siblings who are mentally ill and I can't even, um, you know, I can't, I can't not only, I mean, they're, they, they're, you know, (laughs) they have agency in their own lives and are amazing people who take care of themselves, but, um, I want to help them and I can't. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you, you realize that you don't have control over your life. You can't, there isn't a way for that to exist. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, both my, 
both my father and stepmother had been through extraordinary traumas and that defined their lives. My father's experience in war and my, I mean, the, both of their experiences in war and, you know, my stepmother's experience as a, as a undocumented immigrant and my father's experiences as a, as an alcoholic and, and they were both in recovery and, and so on and so forth. Right. And I think I had always managed the challenges in my life by retreating into myself, muscling up to them and, um, overcoming them through force of will. Yeah. And in some ways it didn't work, but in many ways it did. And I realized through practice, essentially, that I was facing a situation that was bigger than me, you know, that was more than I could control, more than I could just take responsibility for within myself. And um, it's very... It's very sad. I mean, there is, I went to a lot of AA meetings with my dad when I was a kid because oh, yeah. my parents were divorced and um, he went to a lot of meetings because he was in recovery. And so I just went with him. And, um, you know, they were pretty intense meetings. He went to a lot of vets meetings. So, you know, it would be half or two thirds of the people in the room would be homeless and um, you know, cause vets are, are wildly overrepresented in the, in the unhoused community. And, yeah. um, so we'd be in this AA meeting with all these people who were working really hard to make their lives better, but you know, you'd hear their stories of what they had been through. And, you know, one of the big expressions of AA is let go and let God. Right. Yeah. And, um, That is, you know, whether you are seeking that through faith or through meditative practice or through, through therapy or, um, it's an extraordinarily ambitious goal. Yeah. It's a really ambitious goal to say, to, to be able to truly say, I live in this moment. Mm -hmm. I am what I am. I have what I have. I feel what I feel. Um, and I cannot impose my will upon it. I can only make what I can of what is in front of me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You can't control the future. You can't control the past. Um, you can just live in the moment and, and do your best. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, I've gotten a lot better at that, but I still have a really long way to go. Of course. And going through these extraordinary losses and these extraordinary challenges in, in my house, um, that, you know, 
you know, there were times when I was almost very close to literally vomiting from uh, anxiety and um, sadness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, <laughs> you, like I said, you learn how much you can do, but you also... you also realize that even when your capacity grows exponentially, you, it doesn't mean that you have a solution. Mm-hmm. And the, the other day I had this cabin in the Sequoias in the Southern Sierras in sort of central Eastern California. You know, Sequoias are the biggest trees in the world. Mm-hmm. And last summer there was a wildfire that came very close to destroying it and destroyed 10% of the giant sequoias in the world and wow. countless acres. I mean, hundreds of square miles of, um, of trees. And my neighbors, Jerry and Debbie up there live there full time. They're retired. Um, they're retired from public service. She was a public health nurse and and he was a probation officer in continuation schools. They're both very seriously faithful, um, Christians. And when I told, we had basically just not been up there because we couldn't, it was our cap. We just didn't have the capacity to care for everyone safely at home. I mean, much less, an hour and a half's drive from the nearest convenience store. Yeah. You know? um, and I talked to Jerry and Deb. I, I just, I had gone up there because my dad had died and I just needed some time. And so my wife made arrangements for her parents to come to our house so that I could take a few days to go to the cabin and be by myself. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, it, was a time when, when our, our family was still very much in crisis at home. So, um, she needed the support of her parents. And, um, I went up there and, you know, I just like, I went through this box of stuff that my, that my, uh, dad's late brother's wife had sent me or widow had sent me, um, you know, these letters that my dad wrote to them when he was in the service and all this stuff. And, Um, and I talked to Jerry just out back of our houses, 10 feet apart, because it was still the most scary part of COVID. Mm -hmm. And, um, Jerry told me about a crisis that his family had been through that was very similar. I mean, I just told him because I was, you know, I was just like, I, I got to I just got to tell Jerry, you know, I don't, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, And I thought about the fact that these were these extraordinarily loving parents. Like we'd known them a long time and these are kind people and deeply devoted to their families and deeply devoted to their communities 
And I just thought like, well, maybe the best we can hope is what they have, which is not that they have fixed their problems, but that they know that life asks a lot of them and they have to do their best. Mm-hmm. Um, and forgive themselves, show kindness to themselves, allow themselves to be joyful and have the full range of human experience, even in the context of tragedy and pain and unimaginable work and so on. Yeah. I mean, that was, you know, I still struggle very much to remain in the moment, to not try and plan, to not try and control and um, withdraw. Um, yeah. Which were, you know, strategies I learned as the as the child of a broken home. Right. I, if I limit what if I limit what I'm responsible for to myself, then I have full control over it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I'm a parent of three children. I can't, I have, I have a wife yeah. who I love. I love my yeah. children too, you know? So um, that's been a very difficult lesson to learn. Um, mm-hmm. And also just, you know, my dad was pretty fucked up, but I also just miss my dad, you know? Yeah, of course, man. Yeah. <laughs> I just wish I could go to the movies with him basically. Yeah. Yeah. When my when my grandmother was dying, his mom, um, they had a very challenging relationship, but my dad was there for her. And um, I remember she was in the hospital. It turned out to be the night she died. And my, my wife and I, but we didn't know that then. My wife and I were talking with her and she goes, where's Lee? It's my dad. She goes, where's mm-hmm. Lee? And I was like, oh, I think he's taking a break. I think he went to the movies or something. And I remember she went, she wasn't always able to be generous, but this was very generous when she said it. She really meant it. She said, yeah, Lee does love the movies, doesn't he? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yeah, he really does. (laughs) Yeah, so I wish I could just go to the movies with him, go see, you know. He'd yeah. probably want to go see like Peter Rabbit two or Fast Nine. Or <laughs> That's quite a diverse taste. <laughs> well, he, he also like one time I was making fun of him for how much he liked Shrek two, and, uh, <laughs> and he's like, "Yeah, he's like, you know, it was fun." And I was like, "What's that?" He's like, "Well, when when I lived in Berkeley." the the rep house in berkeley played all of ingmar bergman's movies in a row one night after the other and i saw all of them it's like okay dad also shrek too huh yeah call it democratic taste they call that yeah yeah oh man thank you so much for sharing those memories um with me and and with my little audience that's um 
yeah it's 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 so moving to you talking about it and i i mean the the one thing that came to mind while you were talking one of my favorite books is um it's called the stature of waiting by vh vanstone um and he talks about exactly that thing that you've just described which 12-step programs talk about a surrender but he talks about when life is life is taken from you and it's something that is happening to you rather than something that you're in control of, you know, that you're not at the steering wheel anymore, but you're in the passenger seat of life. Um, and he, he's a Christian theologian and says, essentially, that's the whole point of the passion story in the Bible that God himself or, or God, God self has life taken from God and is no longer in the driving seat. Um, and, VH Vanso's point is that in those moments that those are the mo there's a way of thinking about it which is just kind of like you know the serenity prayer uh, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and you could frame that in a way that's kind of like yeah these are a bummer when these moments happen but I guess I'll just put up with them um, but Vanstone's point is like they're not a bummer they are they are the times when you become fully human they are the times when you become who you are um and i would say as a an audience member to a number of your shows um who you are is somebody who offers a huge amount of comfort and hope to i mean i i, I don't know how many people listen to your shows but to lots of people um and i think your openness about your grief and your sharing those stories it's really healing. And I, my granddad died two weeks ago and hearing you talk about your dad has helped me a little bit and it will help my mum when she listens to this. So anyway, that's a, that's a roundabout way of saying, I really appreciate you speaking so honestly um, and, and sharing those memories. It's, it's really cool of you. Thank you. I think that um, losing my dad this year has made me think a lot about my dad's life. My dad dedicated his life, as I said, to organizing and activism. He was mm -hmm. one of the founders of the Veterans Peace Movement and was deeply involved in the independent living movement for people with disabilities and um, you know, he worked for California Rural Legal Assistance for Dolores Huerta. And um, I keep like, you know, sometimes I compare my life to his and I, you know, honestly, I have my act together a lot more than my dad. I'm not an alcoholic. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I, I haven't destroyed my own life in any notable ways. Um, but, you know, I think of this extraordinary service that he did, to, that he dedicated his life to, right? And I think, well, my stupid fucking podcasts, <laughs> you know, well, I dedicated my life to making jokes about Wario's cum with my friend Jordan <laughs> from college. And so I'm like, what am I doing, right? And But then I think, and I think like, but you know what? Like my dad, who dedicated his life to service to others, although it was in some way service to himself as well and his own healing. Um, 
It's like, well, my dad loved my shit, you know, like, mm. it's not like he like subscribed to my podcast, but he would like come to the shows and be like, this is really great. Yeah. He'd laugh, you know, just the same way he loves Trek too. And, <laughs> um, and in, in needing solace from my own pain through silly shit, you know, through watching, you know, the only things that broke through for me that I was able to watch was I was watching Julia Child. I was watching, I think you should leave Tim Robinson's amazing sketch show on Mm -hmm. Netflix. And I was listening to like a few friends of mine's podcasts, stop podcasting yourself and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And you know, I would drive my kid around my youngest in the minivan, trying to get, trying to get a nap out of him, and, uh, be like trying to listen to a comedy podcast and crying and finding comfort in it, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I think between those two things, between thinking about my dad actually liking what I do, even though he wished that I would follow in his footsteps, I think, I would think he wished I would run his NGO when he retired, but, Mm -hmm. um, but like, but knowing that he did like what I did and was proud of me and feeling firsthand the feeling of comfort that I got from media that I needed, both from real friends and imaginary parasocial friends um, when I needed it, that I had always gotten, you know, you get an email or somebody tells you about it after a show in a meet and greet line. You can barely process it because it's just too big, you know? Yeah. Um, but then feeling that myself, I thought like, and also feeling the comfort that I got, especially from Jordan, Jesse go and judge John Hodgman, which is, you know, two of my oldest and most beloved friends. Um, like just getting to show up and laugh with my friends, even Mm -hmm. though I could barely, you know, get myself across the room. I was like, oh, maybe this is a good thing I'm yeah. doing with my life. Yeah. Maybe it's all right. You it, know? it definitely is. And not, not just in a way that it like, you know, will distract people from difficult things. Although that's true and that's worth doing in itself. But in, you know, in between talking about whether a hot dog is a sandwich or whatever, there are genuine you know even just like i said the god or whatever phrase the 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 hearing about you in an offhand talk about the issues that one of your children has faced as a transgender child you know that that these these there's these moments that reach through the you know just the being silly and laughing and actually i think challenge and comfort and do well i I think I'm a better, more inclusive person for listening to Max Fun. And I'm not just a more entertained person. I think I'm a more educated person. And that's because those little moments of sincerity reach through the humor. Um, and they come packaged in a kind of palatable, funny way, but actually really change people, I think. Um, so I, I think, think it is the really person, important. The person I saw my dad laugh the most with was his best friend, Ed. And Ed was a Ed was an activist for whom there is now a, a, hol- a state holiday in, in California. 
Um, and Ed had been, Ed was paralyzed from the neck down except for one finger and had to use a breathing device all the time and fought his way into UC Berkeley where he needed supportive housing when supportive housing was not a thing that existed and fought his way into becoming the head of the Department of Rehabilitation in, in California, which, which dealt with services for people with disabilities and fought his way into a, a MacArthur grant and changed the world. Mm. Um, and, you know, Ed would make fun of people and bully people, <laughs> run his, his chair, his wheelchair into people. <laughs> they were <laughs> fucking with him. And like, and Ed and my dad would just laugh and laugh and laugh, you know? And my dad and his vet friends would just laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. And I remember so vividly my dad saying to me, well, if you can't laugh about it, what the fuck's the point? Yeah. <laughs> and so like I, that is one that I've tried to take to heart. Like it's okay. Like it's important to try and be caring and humane in the way that you do it. But, of course. and, but you know, like there is a fundamental value of laughing and having fun. Like that is one of the points of being a human being. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like there's, there's laughing saints too, you know, not just ones that became saints walking across 14 miles of sea urchins yeah, <laughs> yeah. or whatever. That was the bear. I think that was the bear. Who yeah. Did that. I think the bear did that with the sea urchins. <laughs> I am, when you were describing the bear, just so you know, when I was picturing it, I pictured the bear to be on a unicycle. Not quite sure why, but <laughs> In my head, that's what that icon looked like. <laughs> Wait, we're going to St. Gregory of Nyssa bear icon. We're going to Google it here. Okay, cool. Because they got a list. St. Gregory of Nyssa icons. Where's the list of... Where's their list of uh, icons? Uh, liturgy, sacraments, teaching, spirituality, the church. About us. No, not of... El Cajon, stupid Bing. You know what the problem is? The <laughs> software we're using requires Microsoft Edge, so Bing is the default search engine. Okay, St. Gregory of Nyssa, San Francisco, uh, Dancing Saints Bear. So we, we're giving it really a lot of keywords here. Yeah, yeah. Find out more about the... They got a slideshow! No, alphabetical <laughs> list of the saints. That's what we want. Okay, Bear. We're Googling Bear. I think his bear. name is Bear, Saint Bear. Okay, here's what it is. Seraphim, 1759 to 1833, Russian Orthodox mystic of joy, whose love for all of God's creatures led him to share his fasting rations with a bear, saying, the poor bear can't know it is Lent. So he is always pictured with the bear with whom he shared his casting uh, rations. I thought you were about to suggest that St. Seraphim was a bear, and I, I would have challenged you on that. Um, <laughs> There's a few. Godiva's horse, Seraphim's bear, Francis's wolf, and Sadi's tiger. Oh, there you go. The, the four animals. the Francis, Godiva, Sadi, and Seraphim are portrayed with animals reminding us that God's work of creation extends to all creatures, and that some have known God in companionship with animals or through imaginative and compassionate reflection on the stories of animals. That's cool. 
Yeah, and that's nice. What else is cool? Since Seraphim, uh, don't know anything about him, but one of my favorite ever quotes, which I've used when even when lecturing theology and that kind of thing, it, it, I think it's so important and really relevant to everything that we've just talked about. He said, um, discover the spirit of peace for yourself and a thousand around you shall be saved. Um, and if that's not the point of making people laugh with Max Fun, then I don't know what is, but I think that's an awesome quote. Well, thank From you for man, taking this time to talk to me, Tim. I really was glad to talk about those things. Well, um, thank you again. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, thanks for being so generous with your time and, and being so open. I really, it's been great. Glad my appointment this morning got canceled. Me too. I really am. All right. So uh, while you guys were listening to that or watching that, I made my way to the chapel here at the With Community, which is a really cool space. Check out kind of ancient behind me. And then on the other end of the chapel, kind of more modern. Um, it's a cool space. Um, anyway, look, uh, also, if you're listening to this, not watching it on YouTube, you won't have seen any of that, but you'll just have to take my word that it's nice. Um, thank you so much for listening. Um, thank you again to Jesse for giving up his time and for being such a gracious guest and such a um, so open with what he shared. Um, if you want to follow Jesse... And you should. Why wouldn't you? He's on Instagram. His username is put.this.on. That's hard. I've got Invisalign, and that's hard to say with Invisalign. Put.this.on makes me a bit lispy. Put.this.on. That's because he runs, we didn't talk about this at all in the show, um, he runs an online uh, men's fashion blog called Put This On, and uh, also a store, the Put This On store. Um, so check that out. Um... I think he's probably on Twitter as well, but I'm not, so I don't know his username. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, also, if you want to find out more about this cool former convent, now kind of open community where I'm staying at the moment, check out With Ditchingham on Instagram, W-Y-T-H-D-I-T-C-H-I-N-G-H-A-M, I think, With Ditchingham. Um, and you can follow their updates there. Um, they're, they're great and a really cool community. Um, I think that's it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Um, next time, got a guest lined up. Uh, we're going to talk about yoga. Um, so come along to that. That'll come out on the 1st of September. All right. I'll see you then. Thank you very much. Bye.